Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis, and today we have Eric Ross. Eric Ross is Chief Investment Strategist at Cascand Securities. Cascand Securities provides agile and differentiated investment research, utilizing a combination of fundamental analysis, proprietary data sets and forecasts, computational techniques, and human intuition to sophisticated institutional investors. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Eric. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And just to level set, the first question I have is, you know, what type of investment research does uh, Cascan Securities provide? Oh, it's a, it's a great question because it's, it's kind of a unique product offering. So I actually originally came out of the traditional investment bank sell side type research environment where I had been an analyst, a director of research, and also a chief strategist. And we founded Cassend a little more than eight years ago to provide a lot of the same type of research to the same sort of name brand hedge fund type clients and sort of investment research. But the difference is, is that we were using computational techniques, a quantum mental type product to provide this research. So that was the differentiator. We were really, you know, like for instance, counting parts in iPhones or looking at what uh, volumes of polyethylene was being produced in chemical companies, that type of thing, uh, using satellite data to look at what economic growth was happening in various countries. And so we were trying to tie this to very hard physical evidence of whatever we were saying was happening was actually happening rather than what traditional analysts do, which is kind of hear chatter from one person or another and kind of piece together what could be happening from that way. So that's what we, we have been offering. But after a while, about three and a half years ago, our clients started coming to us and saying, Eric, you've been providing us with other products. We're either trying to raise money or our LPs are asking us about L, uh, ESG type of issues. Can you help us with that? And so we were kind of dragged into the ESG world from that way. This was not some brilliant strategy that we had come up with as sort of a growing market. We instead, you know, were asked by our clients. And so that's, we started providing ESG products. First, ESG risk assessments for our clients on the companies or the entities that they were investing in, and then producing ESG reports for those companies or for those entities so that they then had a, a regulatory or investor presentation for those. And then most recently, we've been doing physical climate risk assessments, uh, again, using highly computational techniques. That's very interesting. Just to drill down a bit, when you talk about uh, physical climate change risk, what are you seeing as trends that companies need to start developing solutions for, need to start thinking about when it comes to physical climate risk? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, in general, what we see across the ESG landscape for companies is that they want to do as little work as possible. I mean, some of them, a very small number of companies strongly believe in ESG and it's something that they should really promote. And the smartest ones see ESG as increasing the value of their company, actually producing better companies, you know, more diverse decision-making, more efficient manufacturing, this type of thing. But in general, most companies are just trying to check the box so people leave them alone. And 
Physical climate risk is an even more interesting one because it's a little bit more out on the leading edge. And what we're seeing is most companies don't feel like they have a need for it at all. They say climate is changing. It's not changing depending on their political beliefs and that, you know, it's going to be everyone's going to be dealing with it. So it's really not a differentiator for us. And, and what we're seeing is that the smartest companies don't see it that way. They see it as something they can get ahead of and they can plan for and put in place some systems that would allow them to either mitigate those risks or potentially at least uh, mitigate the financial impact of their risks from an insurance issue, or maybe they're locating their facilities at different places, or maybe they're evaluating supply chains or suppliers or where they're locating factories in a different way that they can maybe put systems in place in order to, like, for instance, larger barriers for flooding or maybe keeping plantings away from the building to mitigate against wildfire, this type of thing. So the, the smartest companies are starting to think about it. And it's really not being led as much by the ESG teams in a lot of these companies. It's instead seems to be being led by the facilities and facilities insurance groups within these companies. And that, I think, is a really interesting development where these are people that are, are taking concrete, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to assess concrete risks with either their facilities, their buildings, their supply chains, their business continuity, and they're trying to figure out a way to, to mitigate those risks, as opposed to somebody that's just saying, I want to impress my investor base with how much we're digging into ESG. So that's kind of the trends as far as what companies are doing. And it's not the companies necessarily that you're thinking of, like companies with hard infrastructure. It's, it's kind of a mix of companies. We're actually seeing it a little bit more with uh, the financial services guys, at least from our particular business, and less from infrastructure players, like people with big, for instance, uh, chemical plants or refineries. They're doing less work on this, even though a lot of times they're their facilities are located in floodplains or places where you can get ships in and out of, which makes them at risk for a flooding or coastal flooding or that type of thing. We're not seeing as much interest from those types of companies. And we are seeing it from the financial players who want to make sure that their offices are going to stay open, even if uh, there's a flooding or a wildfire, that their data centers are going to stay open. And I think that's a really interesting trend that we're seeing as far as companies and what they're doing specifically. That's interesting because I think when I hear that, I'm not necessarily that surprised that companies that have huge investments in infrastructure close to areas that pose a significant climate risk are not that interested in this only because there's only so much they can do because probably your research will tell them the best thing to do would probably be to move those operations and that may be <laughs> you know, too costly for them. I think that's one of the things I, I'm not too surprised about. And then to, speaking to the point of this information being leveraged and being utilized by facility managers and people in the insurance sort of functions, I think that also speaks to you know, the, the core idea of ESG, which is that eventually this should be operationalized throughout the organization in a way that not just one core group of people are responsible for, for all of it. And a lot of what you're talking about can almost be couched into enterprise risk management. And I think that that's one really interesting idea that I think 
people who are maybe thinking about utilizing your services will say, how can we now, once we get this research, what are the next steps? How do we sort of embed this in our organization and putting it into the facilities management sort of function, leveraging enterprise risk management functions to sort of take this information and to, to make solutions based on is a really cool idea. Yeah, I, I well, first I want to just quickly disagree, respectfully disagree with something you said. You know, these big facilities like a, like a big chemical plant or an oil refinery, what have you, they have to be where they are. Um, we're not, first of all, we're not arguing because people change their business. Our job is to tell them what the risks are. But I would also argue that once you know that the risks may be higher or lower than when you originally planned the facility or when you originally built the facility. There are ways to mitigate some of those risks, you know, very simply, whether it's putting up floating barriers or maybe putting your storage facilities that are a little bit higher or hardening some of these facilities or maybe hardening some of the power distribution, piping or that type of thing. Simple changes that potentially could make your facility last longer, even with more volatile climate risk. And so I think that's more of what to think of. Or maybe it's even as simple as, as you just said, you get better insurance or if you pay for more insurance. So you make sure that even if there is a hit to your your business continuity, that you will be covered from a financial standpoint. I think that's more what some of the financial companies that we're talking to are thinking about it in terms of. And, and then going going back to something else you said, this is all about mitigating risk, and the risks seem to be increasing, at least you know, the volatility seems to be increasing of a lot of the things that we see as far as climate. And you know, for instance, if you look at, let's go to like residential mortgage, you're buying, someone's buying a house, they're going to have a 30-year mortgage at the house. It seems to me nuts that the insurance companies or the mortgage companies or the lenders aren't asking for an assessment of that property going forward 30 years to see whether something like happened in South Florida, Tampa Bay region isn't going to happen to that that property and is going to negate the value that they're lending against. And this just seems nuts to me, but maybe that didn't exist. And I think a lot of companies and lenders, they want as little regulation to stand in the way of them running their business as possible. So I understand that. But as far as from a risk standpoint, this seems obvious to me. Yeah, definitely. And you bring up a good, good point that leads into my next question. You talked about real estate, but are there businesses that you think are especially vulnerable to climate change risk that or sectors you think that should really take this on as a mantle to say, we need to really figure out this physical climate change risk and do these studies that you addressed about before? Well, I think lenders for commercial and, and residential real estate who are lending over more than a five-year period are probably ones that should at least internally consider the risks of these investments. And I mean, the, the truth is, is that climate risk is not as much about the sector, it's more about the location because a flooding is going to impact a shopping mall as much as it's going to impact a residential home, home as much as it's going to impact a data center, as much as it's going to impact an oil refinery or a giant manufacturing plant. I mean, this is impacting these facilities, these assets in kind of the same way, even though they're very different. 
So I'm not sure there's an optimum industry necessarily to focus on climate change. I mean, certainly if you have the ability within your own business to move your locations very easily. So let's just say you are a software as a service or some sort of computational provider, you're, you're Zoom, you're something like that, you're Salesforce, you're something like that. And you don't necessarily have to own your own data centers and you can move your business from one data center to another and location isn't quite as important, even though you have to be in regions in order to have the fastest type service. Well, knowing your climate risk would probably better allow you to choose where you can have your data centers or which ones would be more at risk versus less at risk. But you would probably, your ability to move those facilities without actually owning the, the location or the footprint would allow you to not have as big of an impact on your business continuity as others versus a big oil refinery, which you can't move. And it's, you know, a $5 billion, $10 billion investment for a giant complex. There's no way to move it off the coast because you need access to shipping and, and other transport logistics. I mean, you're clearly going to be more at risk, but you're picking that location for a lot of reasons, not just maybe less cl physical climate risk. There may be access to shipping lanes or you have your own dock or whatever the reason is, or maybe lacks environmental laws, whatever the reason is that you pick that location, you have that location. Climate risk is maybe a secondary impact on your choice of the location, but it could still benefit you in order to harden some of your business continuity issues. Yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with you. I think that there's an opportunity here for people to to do exactly what you said, was to say, climate risk, physical climate change risk are happening. How can we insulate the business as much as possible given the myriad of circumstances we have to work with? And does that mean we have to buy more insurance to say we're, we're in a place that is more prone to these type of disasters? And then this is part of a continuity plan. Maybe do we have to think about our employees and where they are sort of living and 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 how does that impact our ability for our business to continue? I remember a few years ago with the wildfires in California, there were quite a few businesses that were impacted, not because of their physical location, but even if they were a, a technology company, their employees were living in places that were impacted by that. And they couldn't work because they had to find a new place to live or move out of their home because the fires were approaching. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for businesses to think about this in a really strategic way. And then, you know, a question I have for you is that we talked about some of the, what I think people would expect with research when it comes to physical climate change risk. Are there certain things that you uncovered that you, through research that was unexpected that you could share? Absolutely. So we came across, we came to the conclusion that we should kind of do this in a what I call a different way than other people were doing because the output that we were trying to find was really the risk rather than trying to predict what climate is going to be like a hundred years from now. So a lot of the big governmental organizations are kind of trying to project weather forward 50, a hundred years to get a sense of what it looks like. And we're just trying to figure out what the risk is. So we can rely a lot more on a, 
a trend model where we're looking forward and we try to preserve all the statistical data for every type of data point that we can project forward in time. And what we've kind of found by looking at this is that the average, if you look at the average location on Earth, in general, yes, temperature is increasing, albeit I think slower than the average temperature is increasing slower than I think some of the larger governmental models are projecting. But what we are seeing is that the temperature extremes, so for instance, the high temperature of a month, of a, of a year, are increasing faster than the average temperature. And then the cold minimums are increasing even fat or decreasing even faster. So what we're seeing is that the volatility between the hottest and the coldest days or months out of the year is increasing a lot faster than the average temperature is increasing. And I think that that volatility, that weather volatility, I think is the biggest difference that's going on from a climate standpoint. It's not about just warming, although warming may or may not be causing the volatility. It's about the change in the weather and the change of weather extremes, even at, at locations. For instance, we did a test case for governmental organization just to show them what we could do on a, uh, a location in the California high desert. And you'd say, oh, so it's desert, it's dry, temperatures are increasing. So you'd say temperatures are increasing even faster, and that's going to make it even more inhospitable. But what we found instead is that the temperatures were increasing, but not actually that much or much more than you would have expected otherwise. The biggest change in that particular location, and we see this in other locations that are similar, is that the minimum temperatures during the winter months went down a lot. And that's, that is a huge change in what this area needs to deal with. Certainly what we saw from the uh, Texas cold snap we saw last or two Februarys ago um, that made such a big difference in the, in the grid almost collapsing. I mean, that, that was the big change that Texas saw, not the heat, but they were unprepared for the cold. And that volatility, I think it's really something that companies infrastructure owners and governments really need to pay attention to that volatility is going to make the biggest change and the biggest challenges because you're not expecting it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I wonder too, when we think about physical climate change risk, are there parts of the country that when companies are thinking about investing, are there parts of the country that they are looking at that may have been off the radar before, but based on the changes in temperature and intensity that may be more attractive than they had before than they had looked at before. Yeah, it's well we're still at early days I think of utilizing physical climate risk to make business decisions for investment. It's more about there's, there's other things that qualify a location I think for a business location investment such as tax and other incentives, access to logistics, access to power, infrastructure. I mean, I think there's a, there's a cheap land, whatever, a willing workforce, a educated workforce, whatever it is that you need for your business. I think a lot of this is going to trump the physical climate risk at this time. I think a lot of us in the ESG space think of physical climate risk as too high on the hierarchy of needs for companies when making these business risks. And in reality, I think it's much lower down. Although it still is important once you're kind of narrowing down these 
these locations of, to, to start to consider. And I think it's even more important once you've made the decision to make an investment and or you already have those locations for investments, how do I make it a safer, lower risk investment uh, over the next 30, 50 years? I think that's what companies are most likely going to do when they pick up the physical climate risk mantle and, and run with it. I think that that's where it's going to fit in. It's not an afterthought, but it is not the primary driver of where they're locating their, for instance, there are retail companies that have 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 retail locations. They're not thinking about physical climate risk as the primary driver of where they're going to locate their store, their retail stores. They want to locate it where the consumers are going to buy the stuff. And once they do that, maybe they'll choose, you know, close to, maybe they want to be on the second floor of the mall, or maybe they want to be on the mall across the street because it's a slightly higher elevation or whatever the reason is, they're picking that business location to drive their, their business. And this is what I think they should be doing. And physical climate risk is helping to mitigate the risk of that business location. And that makes sense. That leads into my my last question. So when we think about businesses starting to include climate risk within their strategic plans or in how they operate, are you seeing any best practices out there that a company who wants to start to include physical climate risk into their decision-making process or into their overall business process can emulate? Well, the, for the companies that we see that are doing it well, again, they're making their business decisions based mainly on other considerations. And they are, but they're starting to run physical climate risk assessments on either their due diligence locations or all of their existing locations, or and, and they're doing it across data centers. I mean, most companies that we're talking to have data centers in some way, even if they're large oil companies, you still are running a huge number of data centers uh, for your you know, computation, your modeling, running your, your processes. I mean, even a company like that, you'd say it's not a very computation heavy type industry. Well, it is. And I think knowing where your data centers are, are located is really important. So they're starting to segment areas in which having information on physical climate risk is important. So data centers are one place, your actual locations are another place, and then some of your investments are, are third place. But I think that that's even a slower area. And we're seeing, like I said, we're seeing so that you want to run an assessment. And the truth is, is there's a lot of data. <laughs> so you have to find a way to really do a good job at summarizing it in a way that is useful for your organization. So some of the organizations that we're talking to, they want to just know, well, what's the biggest risk properties that we own? So we can deal with that. And then we're going to just kind of forget about the rest of them, even though we were getting the data and we need the data in order to get that assessment. But we're going to deal with, from a business standpoint, just the biggest risk items. And I think that that's probably a good place to start. We're actually seeing that insurance companies are doing this in-house and they all claim they're doing this, but they're doing it very poorly. And we've heard some, frankly, some hilarious stories about some of the output from some of these internal uh, insurance company models. We're seeing most real estate investment 
firms are not doing this at all, which kind of surprises me. We're seeing hotels talk about it because they want to say that they're doing things with ESG, but they're not actually doing these assessments. Surprisingly, again, you know, you have 2000 hotels. It'd be nice to know which ones you need to worry about and you need to maybe have additional training, additional business continuity, get your employees there, additional insurance, whatever the reason is, it'd be nice to know. We seem to be seeing the, the big financial institutions seem to be doing this a lot better than most of these other industries and not sure why that is to be quite honest well that's interesting thank you for sharing that eric and i want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be a guest on the esg matters podcast today no i very much appreciate it it's a great time and i hope to come on again okay.